Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This is Good Humans Podcast with me, Cooper Chapman, chatting to the world's best about the inspiring stories that got them to where they are today. Hello to every single good human out there and welcome to the last episode of 2022. This is guest episode number 80 of Good Humans Podcast. Far out, what a year it's been. It's been about 60 episodes, or no, 52 episodes I guess this year, weekly and what a journey it's been. I can't thank every single person enough who's been tuning into this podcast. It means the absolute world to me to know, yeah, you take some time out of your day to listen to the stories from incredible guests, also my uh, little chit chats on the one percent and the twenty eight and sober podcast. Yeah, it blows my mind how many people are tuning in. So thank you so much if you have tuned in this year. If it is your first time today, a very warm welcome. And please, if you listen to it consistently but haven't yet hit five star rating, please do it. It takes about five seconds, and yeah, it yeah really helps out the podcast. And yeah, it would make me super stoked. Also, if you've been tuning into this podcast this year, you would have heard me talk about the Good Human Factory, my mental health organization where I run mental health workshops with high schools and also with corporate groups and sporting clubs. Uh, Next year is going to be huge, 2023. I'm so excited for. Goal is to speak to over 50 schools, over 10,000 students and 20 to 30 corporate groups. So if you want to learn more about those workshops, I've just done up a full new info pack with a bunch of data, testimonials, and yeah, you can look all through it. So please send me an email to ask about that. Also, if you head onto the website, thegoodhumanfactory.com, you can pick up any of our merch with a big 25% off discount using the code podcast. It does support, um, yeah, everything I do, the whole mental health organization. And yeah, it gets you to be able to share some positive messages. All of our merch does have really positive stuff like be kind to your mind, what are you grateful for, and just messages that can inspire the community to subtly improve their mental health. So go check that out. Use code podcast. And yeah, big thanks to everyone who has supported this year. It's crazy um, how much content I've put out. And yeah, it's all for you guys. So big thank you. I can't thank you enough. And please make sure you tell your friends about it. And yeah, leave us a review on Apple Podcast too. All right, this week's episode is with a guy by the name of Joel Pilgrim. And Joel is the founder of an organization called Waves of Wellness, which is a mental health charity where they do surf therapy, which is just so cool. Obviously, very aligned with what I do, working in mental health and being a pro surfer. This has been an episode I've been very excited to get to um, do. So I caught up with Joel a few weeks back in one of the WeWork offices, actually, which is pretty cool. But it was, um, yeah, it was really, really nice to get to learn his story, understand why he works in mental health, how important it is to him. And then, yeah, how he founded the first ever surf therapy where he takes people surfing and does 12 to, I can't even remember actually, but does long a few like 10, 12-week programs where he takes people surfing for therapy, ties it in with mental health practitioners, psychologists, and yeah, ties in the love for the ocean. And yeah, it's really interesting how he got to that. I absolutely love getting to talk to other people in the mental health industry. It's so important that 
yeah, we are tackling mental health from all angles and to see it happening through surfing is so special to me. So let's jump into the chat, get to know Joel. And yeah, I'm sure you're going to love this episode. If you do enjoy it, please share it on your Instagram story. Tag me. I love getting to know people listening to it. It's a great way to share it around and let people know that you enjoy it. So yeah, chuck it on your Instagram, tag both me, Joel and Waves of Wellness. And yeah, would love you long time. So let's jump into it. Welcome to Good Humans Podcast, Joel Pilgrim. How you going, mate? I'm great, Coops. How you going? I'm very well. It's nice to be in your little WeWork office here in the city of Sydney. It's um, yeah, it's a pretty cool setup in here, eh? Yeah, it's it's actually fun. Yeah, you got your billiards table, your ping pong. It's it's a good time up here. I know. But it's hard to get work done. You got to you got to focus. You got to make sure you don't come to level six. Level six, yeah. You were showing me when we walked in. Level six is the, the fun level with beers flowing after lunch and ping pong and um pool. I would not be doing too much work if I worked here. I don't reckon. It's it's hard, yeah. But also, it speaks a lot to the the negative culture around alcohol too, right? absolutely we might touch on that later yeah we might get into that a little bit later but first let's kick off um let listeners know who you are and what you do so joel pilgrim i'm basically a the way i describe myself is someone who is very passionate about mental health and i use surfing as a way of being able to communicate that to the world so very similar to yourself and and what you're doing with the good human factory Uh, waves of wellness is the company in which i run the charity and it's been around for six years it's something that is a big part of my life but there is much more to my life than just waves of wellness and i'm sure we're going to talk about that but yeah i I would say i'm a a very stoked human i i actually get a lot of people say that i'm a a big frother and captain froth a lot was my nickname um but mate it's just i love being able to share good good vibes with people and make sure that i guess people know how special they are to you if they're in your life yeah it's so nice to have that combination of surfing and mental health, I think as we go through this chat, it's going to become so apparent why both of us are sitting in this room together, you know what I mean? It brings us together, the ocean, but also both of us, I feel like are kind of two of the real like surfers that are spearheading this mental health chat, which is really fun to be able to sit in a room and get to know, yeah, your journey, what got you to where you are today and what got you to this passion in mental health, just like myself. But the first question I'm going to open with today is what are you grateful for right now? I'm grateful for the people in my life that have allowed me to get to where I am today. And what we were talking about earlier got me really thinking around the idea that no man is an island, right? And we all need to acknowledge the support that we've been given. And often we don't do that. You know, often I find that being a CEO of of an organization which is out there in the media, people will see me and they'll connect me with, oh, you're that guy. But there's so many people that have empowered me and given me the support and the the confidence to be here but they often don't get the praise and I find it quite hard to be the one that always gets that attention and limelight when other people don't so I think the gratitude that I have today that's really come out for me is that that thanks and that appreciation for those people who have backed the idea of, that we came up with all those years ago yeah it's so special to actually give recognition to people and like you said I feel like a lot of people who are at the front of an organization front of a business that take on all the limelight don't have that sort of mindset of sharing the important people and the incredible people in their team to bring them up so it's so nice to hear that yeah you're super grateful for the people in your organization and the people in your life who help you achieve the incredible stuff that you do achieve which we're going to get into but first I want to get to know a bit more about you where your origin comes from and what got you to where you are today so let's rewind back to the beginning where'd you grow up what was life like yeah growing up into high school So the first thing that that comes to mind when I'm talking about my childhood is I'm a twin. So I have an identical twin brother. 
And uh, it was always really interesting growing up with your, your best mate next to you because you were never alone. You never really had to deal with, with situations or, or times in your life where you were completely by yourself. So that was pretty special. But I'm a country kid at heart. I, was, mm. I grew up in the Hunter Valley of, of New South Wales in, um, in Singleton. One country. Yep, that's it. <laughs> and um, I actually, another, speaking of gratitude, I'm extremely grateful that my dad got a job by the coast. And at the age of five years old, we moved down to Newcastle and it was almost that sliding door moment in my life where I could have been a, a country bumpkin riding motorbikes and being super stoked and, and growing up on a farm or my life now being centered around the ocean and, and being a huge part of what I call my own mental health and well-being is being in the ocean every day. So I think that from five years old, being a surfer and, and being able to well, being a surfer at five, I wouldn't go that far that quickly, but I was always stoked on boog boogies and just frothing out of the beach and grew up with the ocean on our doorstep in a little place called Caves Beach on the south side of Newey. And it was one of those places where it was super safe. The neighborhood was just full of kids and we were just out running amok until dark. And it was a, a space where you could just create, you could be creative and you could also just be free and not have to worry about you know, all the other things which I, I really worry that kids have to deal with these days mm. with, with social media, with, with the, the fear of, of safety out on the streets. Like there's a whole lot of different stuff which we didn't have to worry about as kids and, and I'm stoked for that. Yeah, we're very lucky. Even I feel like I was kind of just that last generation before mobile phones were like big part of our life, definitely before like touchscreen and location and social media became like a big thing i think like i got facebook in like year 10 so i was like just on the tail end of it before it got too gnarly but i have the same memories of like being a kid just like getting dropped to a mate's place on the weekend with my surfboard see you later mom see you in a few days mm. and just surfing all weekend and like hanging out and kicking the footy in the park and it's so different to now there's no like here take your ipad and be quiet it's it's just so different likewise i'm so grateful for that too yeah it's it, the only reason you'd go home before dark. You, you turn up and your parents are like, what are you doing here? Oh, I snapped my board. I've got to get another one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm hungry. You got any food in the fridge? Oh, and then Can back you feed out my 10 door. friends? Yeah, then back out the door. I've done plenty of that. I feel like there's so many young Aussie kids that there's always that like one or two family house that is just like has all the kids and that was like my house my mom's just like you can't come to my house without leaving with a full belly of food yeah. or like having a kalua bullet or some sort of drink that my mom just makes for you but no it's it's very lucky to live in a um, family life like that yeah so newcastle as a kid let's talk about high school once you got to high school what was life like at high school were you a good kid were you sporty were you academic what um yeah what were your interests and what were your passions going through high school it's, it's interesting because you don't know a thing about what I'm about to share with you, but it was really hard for me. Okay. So high school was interesting because I moved into a, a school where it was not cool to want to try in class. And it was a, a place where you were absolutely bullied to smithereens if you were one of those nerdy kids who sat at the front and wanted to actually study or learn mm. and, and do well in class. So... My year seven in high school, I remember just being the, the worst time of my life. And it was tricky because I had this real creative side within me where I wanted to go and do all this awesome stuff around, you know, singing, dancing, drama. But then I also wanted to go surfing. And on a Saturday morning, I had to find myself making a decision between, you know, showbiz or, or go surfing with all your buddies. And I chose the surfing because of how badly bullied I was getting. Wow. And it was it was quite tricky because 
I look back on it now and I reflect on that time being like, yeah, it was pretty pivotal in, in shaping the direction of my life now. Mm. But I also think back and I think, wow, the amount of times where, you know, trigger trigger warning, you know, suicidality, at the age of 13, like later, later that year, I was thinking of different ways to end my life. Wow. And so for me, that was one of those times where I look back and I actually had buried that. I, it was not until... You know, we'll probably get here later on as well, but it wasn't until probably four years ago, however long the movie A Star Is Born is old. <laughs> I was sitting in the cinemas watching that with my now ex-wife and I just started bawling my eyes out. And it was the biggest trigger for me because I'd turned out, I was seeing a psychologist at the time and I went and said, hey, what's going on here? Like, I have no idea why I'm crying. Mm. It turned out that that had triggered me from all of those experiences I had as a kid that I'd just covered up and covered up and covered up because i just wanted to hide from that pain wow just those underlying traumas are so well hidden sometimes and they really do come out at some interesting times it's something that i've um i've done a few sessions recently i had a lady on the podcast called Elle mcbride who's a um, havening trauma therapy have you heard of havening before so havening no. is this like trauma therapy technique where you like it's um, created by this Stanford medical doctor and it's like starting to get a bit of traction like Justin Bieber and stuff do it with his health coach where you like rub your arms while you do like, while she like talks to you about some stuff and then like gets you to count down and all this stuff. But it like, I did it with her and yeah, it's so interesting like the things that come up once you feel like you're in a safe space to mm. be able to like let stuff open up. Um, and then I also had um, an awesome breathwork chick on um, by the name of Leah Scotty who probably will come out by the time this episode's out. And same thing, she talked about how breathwork helped bring out traumas for her that she wasn't really aware of. And mm -hmm. it's really interesting where these different, and I actually had a toxic relationship specialist on recently as well, Dr. Heidi. And she talked about how like in relationships, what triggers can do. And like, it's so interesting where these triggers come up in life. Absolutely. What were you doing um, once you decided, you know what, drama and this isn't the route because of the bullying, because of the obviously unease that you're feeling in your own mental health because of that pressure. I mean, imagine how many kids there are that don't do what they want to do because of the societal and the kind of cultural pressure they feel in their friendship groups. Mm. Uh, yeah. For me, it was like, so my brother and I were, we were experiencing the same sorts of challenges and we we're both getting pretty badly bullied, but I actually haven't spoken to him about this in detail as adults and what his experience of that was. I can only speak to what, what I went through, but I think I was a bit more sensitive as a kid and it really rocked me. Mm. And so beyond that, the the decision was to move schools. Like it was, wow. there was no option. I had to get out of there. And we basically said we wanted to go to a place where where learning was encouraged and that we weren't going to be, you know, kicked to the to the curb. And so we moved schools. We went in town into Nui and, and got a, a really great education um, you know, just in Merriweather there. So it was, it was a great transition into what I'm really thankful for, like an education where I then learned that it is okay to want to succeed. It is mm. okay to want to, you know, this idea of university, let's explore that. Like rather than whoever goes to uni is a loser. Yeah. You know, it's pretty interesting to see just how pivotal kids and bullying can be in tr trying to reshape your own thinking. Yeah. And it's so interesting, like looking back at school and it's a, you sound like a broken record because I remember when I was a kid at school, how many people told me advice that you wish you heard at school, but <laughs> you're just like, fuck off, mate. But that idea of um, what I look back at school now and probably regret the most out of anything is that you go from 
hour period to hour period of somebody there willing to teach you something. Then once you get out of school, it's like, yep, everything's on your own. It's like you have this resource of like people who are willing to like educate you, who you can ask questions, yet so many of us don't actually recognize that until we're gone from school. So like if I looked at like the best advice I can give to kids is just like just try and learn, learn how to learn as well. Like it's a skill knowing how to absorb information, knowing how to listen mm. intently, knowing how to actively absorb what you're learning rather than just sitting there and letting it go in one ear out the other it's um yeah it's interesting that you recognize that you need wanted to be at a school that you could actually learn from a young age because so many kids will be like oh no screw it all my mates don't care Mm. and then you end up with this like gap in your education and it's such a pivotal moment that time in your life to actually start to be a sponge and learn and shape who you are as a person because that's where you become shaped in high school years so you move schools started getting more into your study and into education what was your mindset throughout that back end of high school what were you looking at going to do career-wise once you finished school so i was lucky enough to go to a selective school and it was i was i went from like the not the smartest by far but um one of the like let's just say the selective class at the one school was just a bunch of you know people that thought oh let's just give it a go whereas the the new school was like everyone was amazing and then i was at the bottom so i went from the top to the bottom and it was amazing because i then didn't feel like i was one of the weirdos i felt like i just fit in yeah and it wasn't about academia for me it was about sport and so the school was amazing at people you know nailing it in all things academia but we also had amazing sports teams so I went to state for European handball, for men's netball, for AFL, like all these state sports where we just had amazing skilled peers that we just loved sport as much as we did getting after it in class. So I, I found that I was actually using sport as a way to just get through school as well around like, let's use that instead of a, I want to do my selectives around or electives, should I say, around sport rather than the other things that are a bit more academic. Uh-huh. Mm. So you're focusing a bit more on sport. What's your vision post high school? Like in those year 11, 12 years, you start getting asked the question, what do you want to do when you finish school? What are you going to go study at uni? What would you answer if I asked you that in year 11 and 12? I would tell you that I want to be a psychologist in the WSL. No way. That's cool. what That's what I wanted to do. Epic. So, so you're mad into surfing. You love you, do you compete or anything? Or I used to. You used to? Yeah, used to on longboards. Oh, no way. Yeah. Sick. I competitively rode longboards for a bunch of years and then, you know, just fell into uni and, and moved away from it, all that sort of thing. But oh, I found that surfing was something that really allowed me to just get away from whatever stress was going on. But then the competitive side of things added to the stress. You more than most people as a professional surfer know all about that. <laughs> but it's it was tricky because this this thing that I loved all of a sudden be became this this thing that was really negatively geared around you have to go and you have to do well and you and have to you, get better. You've got to be the best out there that day. You've got to play mind games with your with your fellow surfers and it's just like but what if I want to just go and have fun? Mm. What if I want to just go and be me and not be whatever one else wants me to be? So while I wasn't a, a super competitive, like high level surfer, I still found that that was something that I really struggled with. Mm. And I wanted to almost just not turn up on the comp days and just go surfing down the coast yeah. or, or just say, oh, I'm not feeling well or I've hurt myself so I can't compete today. And that's, that's pretty sad to see something that you love so much and something that's been such a massive part of my life 
becoming this negative energy. Mm. Yeah, I've felt that throughout my career at times. It's felt like work, which whenever it started feeling like that, I wouldn't even realize it for months at a time sometimes where it'd be like training, working on equipment, going to the next event, losing first heat, the stress of like, am I going to be able to afford to go to the next comp? And it's, yeah, it's so interesting to understand yeah, just how the experience that people as well see from the outside looking in think that you're having just going down for a surf comp compared to what's actually going on in our own mind. And I think that's why it's so important with the work we do in mental health and as well as well around athletes, why it does really affect athletes, um, negative mental health is this fact that it doesn't discriminate this fact that some quite often the people whose lives look perfect adds expectation and adds pressure, which in turn negatively affects our mental health. So mm. having a good bearing and a good understanding of who you are and what your values are rather than anchoring your identity and your achievements, whether mm. it be in sport, whether it be in your career is so important. And that's something that I do speak, quite a lot on in the work that I do and in this podcast. So you finished school. Did you go straight to start studying psychology? So I didn't get the marks. You didn't get the marks. Okay. So I then thought, you know, I want to get into, I learned that occupational therapy was a degree which had the mental health aspects that I wanted to focus on. And so I wanted to go into that, but also wanted to think, see whether physio was an opportunity to, to go and do physio for the WSL rather than psychologist on the WSL. So, Well, quickly, why psychology? Was there anything to do with mental health that was important in your life? That My family, your- like there's been mental health challenges in my family and I think growing up, always being that person who people, I don't know why, just came to and felt comfortable in sharing. And so I became from a pretty young age someone who was able to take on someone else's stuff and support them through that but not to the point where it really affected me and impacted yeah. me. So it was weird. Like as a young kid, I remember just being walking down the street and you would find someone who was really struggling. And But then within the first few minutes, they'd start unloading on you mm. and, and sharing how you're traveling, how, how they're traveling. And I was checking in. It was just, it was like that was natural for me. And I, I wanted to check in and see how people were actually going. Mm. So that for me was something that was just a, an easy avenue, I think. Like I loved that real idea of true connection rather than that superficial bullshit bubbling yeah. on the surface. Yeah, it's nice to see that you could hold space for someone at a young age and obviously so are now with the work you do. So you didn't get the marks, you go straight into occupational therapy. Yeah. How um, Did you study that in Newcastle? Yeah, Newcastle Uni nice. and it was a four-year degree. I, I planned on jumping across halfway through uh, after you know getting the marks to get across to where, wherever I wanted to go, whether it was psychology or whether that was physio. And it was actually quite interesting because I learned pretty quickly that occupational therapy had a bigger mental health aspect to it than I realized. Uh-huh. And you could, in essence, you can be like a physiotherapist in terms of injury uh, management and recovery or like a psychologist when it comes to mental health and cognitive behavioral therapy sort of stuff. Uh-huh. So really interesting that I could be a mental health professional with this OT degree and work alongside of peers who are psychologists without the same degree. So long story short, ended up spending some time over in the UK in a, um, they call it a, a mental health institution or a hospital. And it's actually a, a high secure forensic mental health prison. Wow. And it's like, these guys had, who had committed some really hefty crimes, whether it be you know murder and the likes, they were not guilty due to insanity. And I hate the way that that's framed, but that's the, the wording of what they use. Anyway, I spent about three months over in the UK and learned about how 
phenomenal it was to play a role in these guys' lives to get them back on the train tracks of life to help them potentially, you know, get out in five to 10 years and live a fulfilling life. Wow. Rather than being in hospital and prescribing someone a shower chair or, or teaching someone how to brush their teeth after a broken arm, that's important, but it's not as meaningful to me. And I connected far more on that mental level and it was beautiful to see how much of a role I could play inside of those four walls to give these guys a real reason to want to live. Wow, was it quite taxing and also confronting seeing how far the human brain can kind of be scrambled? I don't know if that's the right word at all, but to see to the extent which mental illness can, the effect it can have on people, was that quite confronting, especially straight after uni? Yeah, absolutely. It, it was definitely confronting, but it was also one of those beautiful eye-opening moments where I was like, whoa, this is this is what's possible here. Yeah. And so you, you're working with people that are very damaged, but a lot of the time people would say to me, how can you justify this? You're working with guys who have done some really heavy stuff. And my response is, well, they never had a chance. Mm. You know, from, from a very young age, one of the guys I was working with, uh, I don't know how much we want to go into here, but his parents were drug dealers and they were, um, they were struggling to stop him from crying and they fed him crystal meth from three months old. Wow. So anyone who's had that upbringing is never, ever going to have an equal shot at life. Mm. And so our job was to go in there and to, to give them that support to, to get those skills to be able to function at, a day, at an everyday rate, which we often take for granted. Yeah, it's crazy. And the judgment that people in society would have towards somebody like that, like, oh, he's just a drug guy, without the understanding and the empathy to know where they've come from. It's crazy how often that happens. Just in everyday life, the amount of times that somebody gets cut off in traffic and somebody gets angry and wants to get out of their car and blow up. But the reason they've done that is because they're rushing to the hospital because they've just got a call that their grandma's about to die. Like the judgment that we hold when we see somebody do something without actually knowing the story is so crazy. And Mm. you must have seen so many great examples of that working Mm. um, over there in the UK. So how how long were you in the UK for? And then what brought you back over to Australia? So I got back here probably 2011 and then jumped into, 2012 jumped into a role here down in Sydney. And I wanted to actually work in sort of the high school forensics in Australia because I was so stoked in, I've got a, I reckon I've got a few screws loose because I, I get so excited by that real like high intense sort of environment and the, the sort of stories which would rattle someone, they excite me that I can mm. actually make a difference. So getting back to Sydney, my, my goal was to you know, wait for a job to come up in that sort of space. It didn't happen. So I ended up applying for a job at the, um, the Bondi Community Mental Health Center, which was all about first episode psychosis. And so these guys work with people who are, you know, let's say a young person between ages of 16 to 24 and they have their first episode of mental health challenges and they come into contact with the mental health system for the first time and it's due to psychosis whether it's stress-induced trauma-induced or drug-induced and my job as an occupational therapist on this early psychosis program was to get these guys back into the the habits and the patterns of, of living a well life and so whether that was sex education, relationship counselling, um, psychological support, um, everything in between, my job was really to whatever they needed to be able to be well and to function 
as a member of society in an everyday way, then that was my job to get them back on that train tracks of life. So it was pretty special because you're working with these kids who had a lot of, what what would you say, probably self stigma. They didn't realize what was happening for them. They lacked insight. And it was such a daunting place for them to be finding themselves in. Mm. But no matter how they got there, and there were plenty of ways that you can you know, develop psychosis, being able to normalize that in a way for them that was not, here's a pill or here's how crazy you are. Mm. The use of wording and frame, framing of words, I think, is also something that's worth touching on. But like the word crazy in and of itself is something which we need to move away from using Mm. because of the negative connotations with mental ill health. But these people genuinely did think they were crazy. And our job was to say, well, you're not, you've just been through a really challenging time and we're here to support you and give the skill, give you the support and the skills that you need to be able to function. Mm. I love that you say the support and the skills and where you reference just quickly, not just giving someone a pill is so important and it's something that I can see if I just see you rolling your eyes as I say that, that you're very on the same page as me when it comes to the pharmaceutical side of the mental health industry, which to be honest, we might be able to have a bit of a chat on this. I always try and steer away from it, but it'll be good to have a chat. We will get into it shortly, but I just want to quickly touch on the language part of stuff because that's something that you obviously wanted to really touch on quickly. And I think it's important speaking to someone like yourself who is a professional if we've got someone in our life who is struggling with a mental health issue, whether it be psychosis, whether it be anxiety, depression, bipolar, what is the sort of language that we should be approaching? And if we do see someone really struggling and we don't really know how to approach them, very different, but I'm right, I've am i learned a lot about the disability community, community over the last six months on how important the way the language you use is. How important is, in, in, is it in this mental illness side of the industry to talk to people in a way that isn't more harmful yeah it's a great question and and what's some advice yeah to people who yeah do have people in their life who might be as society we call a little bit crazy how do we talk to them in a way that can assist them to maybe start swinging their life back away from this craziness that we yeah i think the movies have actually impacted us a lot in the way we deal with this stuff and rather than someone who might be a little bit crazy they're someone who's been through a challenging situation and they're, they're having a hard time. So I think the first place we need to start is mental health is mental health. And our, our health is our wealth. So we need to talk about, talk about it like that and treat it like mm. that. Our physical health, that's also our wealth. And we talk about going to the gym and, and working on our, our physical fitness. What are we doing about our mental fitness? Now, I will deliberately not refer to mental illness as an illness a lot of the time because it's... I think that comes with a lot of stigma as well. Mm. So I'll often say mental ill health. So it's either mental health or mental ill health. And then when we're talking about the the whole, I guess, sector in general, there's different ways of saying the same thing. Someone who has schizophrenia is very different to they are a schizophrenic, which mm. has a lot of stigma and stuff associated with it. Or they're being really bipolar when they're just you know, going up and down in their emotions is very different from someone having a diagnosis of bipolar. Mm. So people have become very familiar with using mental health language or mental ill health language in a way that is detrimental to someone that they're labeling with that. And just without, describing a behavior yeah. with a mental illness, even though you're not, <laughs> you're not a doctor to be able to, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, just Which, just, yeah, without knowing the implications that that's going to have on that individual. And 
I mean, I've got friends who have got bipolar. I've got friends who have family have got bipolar. And when they hear someone say, oh, they're being so bipolar, mm. it just makes their blood boil. It makes my blood boil because there's a lot of work being done in the, in the landscape of mental health to make sure that people are feeling included, that language is very strength-based and recovery-orientated and we're moving in a direction that is is sort of growth mindset. Mm. But it's hard when you when you do see the movies out there on Netflix, The Suicide Squad. You know, they're, they're all have as good of intentions as they do but the even the naming and framing of those sorts of things really irks me and, and mm. i think we need we need to make sure that every thing is that's put out there in society is contributing to a positive agenda around mental health and well-being rather than almost making it harder for us to make those legways forward yeah it's so interesting there's the stuff about the movies it's wild how much movies and hollywood shapes what we think is normal just because it continually comes up in front of us in movies with just so many topics and mental health is obviously a big one as well you see like movies like the joker and stuff bring mental health in a certain light but then people see that as everything mm. and it's yeah it's super interesting so i want to start moving towards how surfing became so important to you and how surfing became so important for therapy for you after you finished up in the Bondi um, practice, Bondi, yeah, mm -hmm. how much longer were you there for before Waves of Wellness was created? So, well, let's go oh, further an, back, yeah, right? Yeah, let's go back. Like, surfing for me was always that place where I think I said earlier, like it was my escape. Yeah. And when I was going through those challenges earlier on, it was a place where I could go to the beach and just forget about everything. And now I actually... I have this analogy around the, the ocean. We use a lot of metaphors yeah, around you and I, right? <laughs> Surfing and mental health. But I call the shoreline the bullshit barrier. And as soon as you step over the shoreline and get out there in the ocean, then nothing that happens you know, on land can affect you. None of the bullshit that people are carrying on with, the the what are you going to have for dinner, like who's you know, having a, a complaint about whatever, like what relationships you're struggling with. None of that matters when you're in the flow of surfing. Mm. And so flow state, there's a lot of science and stuff we can talk about there. But really what we're talking about is that was my place to run away, mm. to escape whatever was going on. And there was a fair bit that I was trying to run away from. And so in university with, with studies and all of that, in working environment with the stresses that come with that, surfing was always the place that I went to to be able to, I guess, de-stress, to do fitness to do mindfulness, to do like connection with friends, to do connection with myself. Like there were so many reasons for surfing. But whether it was in Australia, whether it was overseas, like I always found that I was trying to find more. Like we've talked about competitive surfing and how we were always, you know, hustling to try and be better. But for me, it was like, well, what I'm actually trying to do is form stronger relationships. And surfing was actually the, the mechanism that started to allow that to happen. So... I actually had connected with a guy in Bondi and who was doing some amazing stuff with, with uh, you know, Grant from OneWave. Yeah, yeah. And we met in the second we week that he'd come up with that concept. And he basically spent the next, well, we spent four years together you know, from that day working on building OneWave to what it was. And it was beautiful because it was an opportunity for the community to really connect with that idea of let's draw awareness to this idea and that, uh, that sort of... Um, that awareness movement but what i found with the the work that you were just talking about with bondi community mental health center is that 
what we were doing is actually asking people to come into the center to talk about what they really struggled to open up with and do it on our terms, not on theirs. Mm. So all of a sudden they come in and they, they, for the first time, they're like, what is this place? And it was a, a four-walled white sterile setting and it was very clinical. And how the fuck can you tell someone or ask someone to open up and feel comfortable when they are just feeling so out of their element? It's so foreign, this environment. So it was really obvious to me that, yeah, medication and hospitals and community health settings, they do play their part. But there is so much more to mental well-being than just what the traditional model actually has mm. in historical times. So for me, it was really interesting to see that that was a really progressive center, which had a gym in the mental health center. And it was the first one in Australia. Wow. And it was pretty quickly we started having sessions on exercise bikes and people would come into the center but instead of going and sitting in the in the therapy room we'd go and sit on the bikes and we'd just be sitting and having a yarn and the 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 50 minutes that we had in a therapy session was far more beneficial because they were distracted mm. and they were they had this what i call third person activity and they were connecting shoulder to shoulder and as blokes we do that very well rather than face to face because we don't want to talk about stuff head on but when, when that started happening, I was just amazed because all of a sudden these, these young guys were, guys and girls were just like different people. Yeah, wow. So one day I actually had a, a we called them patients or, or clients. I had a patient who had just come out of hospital and he was a client in the community mental health setting now. And I said to him, what do you want to achieve here? Like, well, not what I want you to do. What do you want to do? And he says... I want to get back to surfing. I want to get back into, you know, being able to be fit enough to surf. He'd been a surfer years ago and he'd put on over the last three months, 25 kilograms wow. due to antipsychotic medication. And there's a lot of stuff, you know, out there in the market now around, you know, how to combat that and what medications they can take to, to not put on that weight. But what happened was he had completely moved away from what he loved and enjoyed and he just was a shell of a human because mm. he wasn't able to connect with what he loved so being a surfer myself i i took that into my own hands and i said fuck yeah let's do this i went to my house and i grabbed two surfboards i went and picked him up from his house on a home visit and we went for a surf and that was our therapy session for the week and it was one of those moments where i took a clinical risk which i could have gotten a lot of trouble for but I made that decision. That clinical reasoning was based on the premise that this is what this guy wants to achieve and my job is to help create that. And long story short, those 30 minutes that we're out there in the ocean, we probably, we, just, we sat around, it was Maroubra actually, we sat around the bra and we floated for probably half an hour without catching many waves at all. And in that time, he was probably more connected and more sharing with me than he had in the last three months. Wow, it's so cool that you say that. I, I remember working at Manly Surf School times where you just be sitting out there and the waves were flat and you just get to have such a great connection with people. And I love this idea of not being face-to-face -face with someone, being shoulder-to-shoulder. -shoulder. It makes it so much easier to open up and to communicate. And I think it's so important to recognize the risk that you took as a clinician to take him out there. And I feel like it's something that maybe, and it's a hard one because I'm definitely not a doctor. I don't have 
any um, formal education behind me around like psychology and stuff, but it seems like the system's broken. Just from the way that we spoke very briefly about the pharmaceutical side of stuff the other day, I mean, just recently, it just makes me kind of aware of how trapped a lot of clinicians must feel that they're like, wait, is this it? Like, And the amount of times I've had people on this podcast and I've spoken to people that say, oh, I'm really struggling with my mental health. I went and spoke to a psych and the first thing they did was said, take this. And I just feel like there's so many people who are prescribed medication before getting other things in their life right, like Connections. I don't know if you've read Lost Connections by Johan Hari. No. Oh, incredible book. You'll love it. I'll have to, um, you'll have to write that one down. Lost Connections, Johan Hari. He's um, incredible. He's been on um, uh, Hugh Van Kylenberg's podcast a Great. few times. But he goes on to explain the fact that the pharmaceutical industry has been marketing this whole chemical imbalance thing for the last 50 years and made billions of dollars off it. Whereas now there's a lot of data and a lot of science showing that it's not to do with this chemical imbalance that we've been marketed that this pill's going to fix. There's, there's so many contributing factors like our connections with others, like our exercise, like our sleep, like our diet. Yet a lot of clinicians are just going the route of, oh, well, we get the kickback and this is kind of, yep, it fits under the category of do this. And I feel like now with the education, as far as I have learned from so many different people I've had on the podcast is that like nutrition's like a two-hour thing in a doctor's like degree. And it's like what causes so much of our disease, like the cause should be just as important as like the effect of what's happening to like learn why it's happening but we just, it just feels like the education and everything's so twisted and backwards with health at the moment. What's your take on that? I think that we need to be very clear that medication does play a role Absolutely. in a lot of people's lives. And those people who it works for, awesome. Amazing. Like, that is so good. And those people who have found the right balance that works for them, that's epic because it takes so long to find that right fit. Mm. But there is... A, there's a big journey to get to that place. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize that when you take medication, you have to take it for three weeks straight, 21 days before it will start to take effect. But what people do is there's sometimes side effects. There's sometimes challenges with other areas of their life that they then t um, move away from, from completing those three weeks, which means that it's not effective. So there's a lot of education that needs to take place around how to you know, effectively dose up, et cetera. But what we also need to consider is that medication is not for everyone. Mm. Medication is a, a Band-Aid which is often thrown first out of the first aid kit, but it's not necessarily the solution for all. And like you said, you, you really need to focus on those interpersonal relationships, the, the diet, the exercise, the, the drug intake, Sleep. alcohol sleep 100%. So there are so many things in that holistic well-being aspect that we need to consider and and make sure that we are cognizant of so that we are mindful of every little piece of the puzzle that is playing into that person's well-being mm. or, or lack thereof at that time. So for me, I've seen some people that have resonated so highly with, with medication. I've got friends that are on SSRIs, which are antidepressants. I've got friends who are on lithium to manage their mood stabilization. Um, so, and they, they love it and they swear by it. But I've got other people that have just gone, I had such a negative experience with that, that we need to treat people as individuals. Yeah. We need to treat people as give them all of the options and then they get to choose with the support of, of mental health professionals and people that really know what they're talking about, 
hey, if that's not for you, that's okay. And if you find that someone is really erring towards the side of medication is the answer and that's not something that you rely upon or believe in, then that's that's okay. You can get a second opinion. Yeah. And you can make sure that you, you set yourself up. It's the same for mental health therapists, right? Yeah. If you go and see a therapist, people often don't realize that on average, it's three people, three therapists you need to see to find the right fit. Yeah, wow. But often they will go, oh, no, I've, I've tried one. It didn't work. Fuck that. I'm out of here. Yeah, therapy's not for me. Yeah. I, you hear that all the time. It's something that I think is so... I, I love that you brought that up, that for most people it takes up to three to find someone they want to work with. And it just makes sense. It's like you're not going to just become best friends with the next person you walk past on the street. You have to find someone who you can have a connection with and who you can build trust with to be able to share your story. And I think not giving up is so important. And I think as well, whether it be from having finding a psychologist, it might be to, oh, you know what, meditation wasn't for me. I might try breath work. Oh, you know what, breath work wasn't for me. I might try journaling. Oh, journaling wasn't for me. I might try yoga. Oh, yoga wasn't for me. I might try surfing. There is something out there for everyone rather than trying something once and going, ah, oh, that's not for me. And I think it's so important that people recognize that. Mm. Let's talk about now where after that session with um, one of your patients or one of your clients, you took him surfing. Was that the light bulb moment? I need to do this more. Is, yeah. I need to look into this. I need to get, because like, oh, well, you said it was a bit of a clinician risk. Was there a lot of legalities between coming up with waves of wellness? And yeah, what was that next chapter? Yes. The answer is yes. There's a lot of yeah. legalities. I think from... From the early days, it was clear that there was a model in which the, the health service was built on and there was a certain set of, of rules that they needed to follow. And I tried to create a program that was based around um, you know, a surfing group. It was an eight, a 12-week program at the start. And I had spent all this time on building up this model and presented it to the, the New South Wales Health. And they basically said that I was three things, right? I was dreaming. <laughs> I had two, uh, rocks in my head. And there was too much risk and red tape. Oh, and I was just a surfer who wanted to get paid to go surfing for a living. <laughs> I mean, they weren't wrong, but it was a very different um, rationale. But I think what was really clear really early was that you couldn't create a huge amount of change within a beast because there's rules and there's mm. there's there's regulations, regulations and things you got to follow. So we actually. Um, I was able to, you know, work up with a, a an organ, non non government organisation who was a little less um, focused around the risk, and they were incredible in supporting and backing the the pilot of the program. And we we trialled it. We got ten people involved, and it was a twelve week group. And it was just it was so evident that this had to happen because yeah, that experience alone with that one guy was incredible. But then seeing what happened in a group of ten people was like, wow, this is awesome. Mm. So. We tried to make it work in the early days within one wave, and it was just really important that we kept the the Fleur of Friday thing um, very independent because that was the the flagship. And so, what we actually did was Waves of Wellness was then the program which was designed, and we we separated the two and made sure that they worked closely together. And the program in and of itself was actually a vehicle that allowed us to. I like to say it it allowed mental health to become mainstream mm. because people who were struggling then who didn't want to access clinical support services because of the stigma, because of a whole lot of other things were then starting to come to us to access our model of support services instead of going to the hospital. 
So it was a it was a beautiful time, but it was also a pretty big journey because waves of wellness needed to be established in a way where we could then exponentially grow this this program to be able to support people around Australia. Yeah, it's so interesting. I love the way that you brought that up, and I didn't even think of that. It kind of gave permission to people who might feel like they don't fit into those confines of what the traditional healthcare system is, because there is a stigma to it. As much as we want to say like. By having more people on podcasts and more pe- famous people talk about like it's okay to ask for help, I like to be honest. I think one of the main reasons why I personally have done okay with my mental health is because I was too scared to go and ask for help. So I went and found things that worked for me without going and ask for help. And I say that story all the time when I was like in my early twenties. I remember losing in a surf comp and going like, "Fuck, maybe I've got mental health issues here. Like I've got family history with it." I'm really struggling like mentally I just like I feel depressed I'm what am I gonna do and I was like too embarrassed to go and tell anyone that I was really struggling so my choice was to go and educate myself and try things whereas most people not most people but a lot of people don't realize that they have that choice to make whether they want to be the victim or the hero and go the victim card and then find it really hard to build the courage to actually ask for help but having waves of wellness is such a unique and such an awesome way for people to go and see therapists. So do you want to explain what Waves of Wellness is for people who are probably starting to go like, wait a sec, what is this thing? <laughs> <laughs> I will, I'll get there okay, in a second. So there. But, we'll, but, but what I want to touch on first is that idea that you just mentioned that we as humans want to associate with the mainstream mm. because it's easier and it's comfortable. If you go, if you diverge away from mainstream, it becomes uncomfortable because there is less support, there's less understanding. And when it comes to mental health support services, there, there is a big need for innovation. Like mm. we, we have to shake it up and we need to make sure that people can access support who need it. So what surfing has done for me is allowed me to connect with people in a way which in a way which i never would be able to get to that depth with them now whether that was i mean i remember having a conversation on bloody um, namoto island i was a lifeguard over there and i was talking to guys that were guests on the island around the importance of meditation and we did like a a bit of a sharing circle and we did all sorts of stuff but it was it was surfing that brought us together Mm -hmm. and we all connected over that shared bond but what we're doing with waves of wellness is actually hooking this mainstream activity of surfing onto this not so mainstream and or cool aspect of mental ill health and we're drawing it out of the darkness so that people feel like they can actually approach it and talk about it mm. but it's done in such a way that it is so laid back and so relaxed that they don't realize the benefit that they get yeah so waves of wellness is a mental health charity which uses surfing as a way to connect people and give them the skills to manage their mental health and it's done in a formal group therapy context run by mental health clinicians on the sand on the beach but they are also the learn to surf instructor so we call them our unicorns because they've got two hats on and they're very skilled at what they do but we call it health by stealth because they're literally coming in in a real stealthy way they're getting dressed up in weddies they're going to sit on the sand and hang out with people and run a therapy group which is usually run on a hospital ward. Wow. So it's now an eight-week program. We've got six-week men's wellness programs with Movember as well. But 
the program is in in essence is just giving people the six different weeks, six different skills, eight different weeks, eight different skills around mental health and well-being. It's eight different topics over eight weeks that are usually done in that hospital environment. Everything from healthy relationships to, to self-esteem and coping strategies to, um, you know, how to be well and what your wellness toolkit looks like. You know, these conversations are not rocket science, but it's, it's done in a way where people can connect with it mm. and learn in such a laid-back space where it's not oh shit, I have to go to the hospital. I'm not going to do this community health group because I'm stuck in that stigma. Yeah, that's so interesting. So when did the um, concept begin and how small did it start? Um, yeah, what was that? those first stages of building it? Because we spoke about this off air, starting a charity can be um, a bit of work, but obviously it's something that you're so passionate about and then also having that route of having the funding through being a charity to be able to offer these um, these programs to people. Yeah, what was the initial stage like? And then we'll catch up to where we are today. And yeah, because I want to hear about how people can access the program and everything as well. So yeah, what was the first steps in starting Waves of Wellness? The first step was was one of, oh shit, do I have the ability to quit my day job yeah. at the hospital? Because there was like a middle ground between like, I need to be able to feed myself yeah. and pay rent, but I also need to have the bandwidth and the ability to think about this and focus on it. I know with Good Human Factory, you've been through similar stuff around that tug of war and people pulling you in different directions and, and where do I put my time? For me, it was actually the the fear of like, is this going to work? But you, there's only one way for it not to work and that's by not giving it a go in the first place. Mm. So I jumped ship and I actually started driving as an Uber driver. No way. And I would do the, the work at home and then I would, you know, when the, the Uber was surging, I'd get out and get after it. And I remember having some pretty incredible conversations with people because they'd always say, what are you doing on the side while you drive an Uber? Oh, I'm starting up this charity. This is what I'm doing, blah, waves of wellness, blah, blah, blah. And one day in that Uber, I actually met an incredible guy and it turned into a $20,000 Uber trip. <laughs> It was it was incredible. Long story short, it was three. Keep it long story long. I want to hear this. This is a, this is a good story. Okay, well here we Let's go. go. Uh, we were. It was Melbourne Cup. Yeah. He'd had a good day. He'd um he'd succeeded, and he said to me, "What do you do?" I told him a bit about it. He goes, "That's awesome. Here's a hundred dollar tip." Huh. Tell me more about that. Oh wow, that's really cool. Here's another hundred dollar tip. And then towards the end of the trip, he says, "Did he win some money at the races?" He did. <laughs> Pocket full of cash. He said, if I had a, a large sum of money, what could I do with it? And I said to him, it was really really simple. I said, mate, you could change a lot of people's lives. Wow. And I remember he just went like, okay, give me a card. Like, we'll catch up. Three weeks later, we were catching up at, in his you know, 27th floor over Sydney Harbour. And he was, he was from a, a, a property company. And he's now one of the biggest donors at WOW. Wow, good on him. But he is just the most incredible human who was so generous because he connected with the story yeah. and he basically realized that he could play a role in this and he was the one of the first funders to really get us off the ground so yes starting a charity is hard yeah. and it is it is really difficult because there's a lot of things you've got to navigate through but at the end of the day if you hold the clientele that you're there to support at the forefront at mm. all times and you make sure that everything you do and every decision you make is around that service user to make sure that their mental health journey is better then you've done your job yeah. and we set out starting waves of wellness to save one life 
And I actually can't count the amount of people we've saved to suicide in this six years. Wow. You should be so proud, man. It's it's just incredible to hear the origin of the journey, just seeing there's got to be more to help these people who I'm trying to help in hospital and then going out on a limb and being creative enough to be like surfing, like let's get this guy out in the water to then snowball into where you're at today. So those first couple of years, what were the, what did the program look like and how many people sort of came through your program the first, what, let's call it two years? One of the things which we, which I would definitely change is we were very reactive and we've spoken about this as well, yeah. like being proactive or reactive. And we were, we we're actually responding to people around the country saying, we love this program. The sound of it is incredible. Can you come to us? We ran the program in the Gold Coast, Perth, and Esperance within the first eight months of being in existence. Uh, this is in the piloting stages. And it was really tricky because we, we scaled far quickly, uh, far too quick too soon. Yeah. And so when we, we established Waves of Wellness as its own organization and really ripped into that next gear, we made sure that we had a, a sustainability plan. Yeah. We made sure that we did things uh, at the speed at which it was realistic. And you hear smart goals all the time, right? But I was like, Yes, smart goals. Let's do that because it was not uh, a race to see how quickly we'd do it. We wanted to make sure we were going into communities and setting these guys up with a sustainable program that can continue for years to come. Mm. So it was a it was a really interesting journey, but that's also the gratitude part of today, where we think back to look how many people were a part of that journey that don't get the credit for that. Yeah, that allowed Waves of Wellness to get to where it is today to be a national organization in four states supporting thousands of people. It's not something that happens overnight, but overnight success might be one article that then makes things go viral. Or it's, I think it's important to stop and consider like the, the journey is as, as enjoyable and fruitful as the destination. Mm, absolutely. And I think something that's quite interesting with your story and it's quite unique, a situation that both myself and you would find yourself in is the quicker we scale, the more people we can help. So as much as you want to just go fast, it's kind of like that old saying of like, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And building that structure and that base is so important. And just from the way that you kind of started to describe your story, it sounds like there might have been a few complications with this rapid growth early on without having the infrastructure to be able to maintain it which in turn just ends up with the program maybe not being at the level that you want it to be and the people getting the help that they deserve as well so it's finding this balance of growth but then this i don't know if you feel this but like this kind of personal pressure and expectation to try and help as many people as possible because you are confident in what you do and the impact that it has so yeah, moving forward after you kind of start to get the program really starting to work, you're a couple of years in, um, has it been hard to find like surfers that are mental health professionals as well to be able to run the programs? And how many um, facilitators do you have now working with Waves of Wellness? It is hard to find initially because it's like a needle in a haystack, right? Mm. It's not only someone who's really qualified and skilled in mental health professional sort of aspects, but then you've also got to think about are they an intermediate or more ability yeah. surfer who we can train up? And excuse me, it's it was really hard in the early stages, but then they actually start to find us now, yeah, which is really would. special. But that Chinese proverb you bring up around go far, go together, it's funny you raise that because in 2017, in the early days, we, we actually had 
um, an organization from South Africa reach out and bring the eight leaders in the world to South Africa to meet up and talk about surf therapy. And there we all founded this organization called the International Surf Therapy Organization. And that was, in a way, the, the governing body of surf therapy to support the, the leveling the bar up around the world. Now, over the last five years, there's now 135 organizations globally who are members of ISTO. Wow. So that idea of Go Far, Go Together is exactly what that's all about. Mm. Let's support each other no matter what method of surf therapy you're doing to ensure that everyone has the, the support, the the data, the research to back yeah. it up and the evidence to really push this forward in a way which we can to, can really speak to. But there was a, a really special moment back in 2018 when we had the conference back in South Africa at J-Bay and it was when the, the comp was on there for WSL and a, a number of the athletes got involved and signed the, the declaration and, and really backed this movement. It was, it was one of those weeks where I was like, wow, like what we are doing is actually having an impact in far more than just our, our national Australian market. It's all around the world and it's mm. really special to see. Yeah, the impact that surfing has globally is just profound and then to now tie mental health through it, it's really nice to see what you have created. So now coming into sort of where we're at now, how many programs are you running nationwide? How can somebody, if they are kind of struggling with their mental health and they're like, yeah, how do people gain access to your program? Is it something you have to go through the healthcare system and then you get led towards you guys? Or yeah, how do people get in touch if they want to do a bit of surf therapy? Yeah. So we have programs in 10 locations around the country and they are spread around you know, East Coast, West Coast, down South as well in, in Victoria. So really there's a, a big range of locations and they can get involved in lots of places. But if you are wanting to get involved in what we're doing, I think the misconception is that you have to be really struggling with your mental health. You have to have a diagnosis of mental ill health mm. and you have to be actively you know, working with a case manager or a therapist. That's not true. You know, we have a huge range of programs that we offer from programs for you and I and blokes who just think, I could probably do a bit better about my mental health and I'd benefit from having conversations with other blokes about how to stay mm. well. That's our Movember program. Or then you've got your, your emergency services and first responders programs where these guys have experienced quite traumatic things mm. and being able to really formally process that trauma with them in much more of a clinical way yeah or is it veterans that have come back from combat is it domestic violence and people who have, have been through trauma is it a a grief and loss program for a community on the north coast of new south wales that had a shark attack um, mm. that had took the life of one of their their young people there are so many different programs that run yeah, lgbtqi plus you know first nations people um, the the joy in what we do is that whether whether or not you're someone who's a, a new to Australia as a refugee and you come and you want to use surfing as a way of, of being able to connect with people, we have a program for that too. Wow. So it's not just around the idea of it's learn to surf, let's get out there and get after it. It's using surfing as a conduit for change, mm. using surfing as a, a vehicle to bring people into what we often take for granted as surfers being the ocean and something that we love and have as part of our lives we can now share that with people from many different walks of life who would never ever get the chance to do that otherwise yeah it's so special i didn't realize that there was such a range i thought it was more the program was strictly 
somebody with a diagnosed mental illness comes to do your program for their 10 weeks rather than their 10 weeks of seeing a psychologist. That's really cool. And I think it's important what you brought up about that it, it's just a, a guy that feels like they don't really have anyone to talk to. And like, I'm sure you know the statistics behind this probably better than I do. But isn't it like one in three men feel like they don't have anyone they can talk to? And mm -hmm. I think when you look at a stat like that, there's millions of men in Australia who just feel like they can't even chat to someone around them. So I think a program like yours is so important for that avenue just as a way for people to come and connect if they just don't have any friends. And I come from a place of privilege. I'm very lucky. I've got such an incredible network of people around me. So I get kind of blinded to the fact of that. And it seems crazy to me that, but the statistics don't lie. It's something that is happening all around the country, all around the world. People don't feel like they have people to connect with. And it's so special to know that your program does offer that. So if somebody does wants to get want to get involved with ways of wellness, what's the best way to go about it? So Instagram is a big presence for us at Foundation Well yep. or foundationwell.org is our website. And yep. There's a whole lot of different ways that you can get in touch and, and reach out to us. I think the important thing to note is it can be a self-referral. You yep. can refer yourself. You can refer someone that's close to you or you can, I guess, get involved as a volunteer and a surf mentor because there are a lot of surfers out there that still would benefit from this stuff, mm. but they also have a lot of skill to give back as a volunteer. Yeah. So... The ideal is a participant who then gets the skills to then come back and be a volunteer and, and you know, can remain an engaged member of the community. But we find that there are so many amazing people out there that are surfers that want to give back. Yeah. So, and then they come and they get involved in these conversations and they get the same, if not more, benefit than the people that came as participants. Mm, it's built so much empathy so yeah how, so if i want to come and be involved with both well which mm -hmm. i'm going to chat to you i want to do some more stuff with you guys it'd be cool to link up 2023 and work out a bit of a plan how we can collaborate some good human factory stuff together um so yeah if you're just a person who loves surfing and thinks you want to get involved to maybe help the community a bit mm -hmm. how can volunteers get involved and what does that look like if you don't have that mental health training can you still come and coach alongside the other practitioners yeah so the mental health um clinicians and who are the surf coaches would be doing the the surf instruction yeah. and they would simply be a support to you know give them a few tips and tricks and, yeah, and the really surf point them in the right push them in some waves yeah. yeah yeah and and for me that's one of the most special parts of the program where out the back when you you're sort of floating around and connecting with it with someone who knows what they're doing in surfing as a surf mentor you just see the, the eyes light up of the participant around, I want to be like them. Mm. So they can get involved in a six-week program volunteering or an eight-week program. And we ask that they remain committed to the, the whole duration of the program to support the individuals for the whole duration of that. Um, but yeah, same thing, social media, website, that's the way to get involved. Epic. Yeah, I'll have in the show notes all obviously the um, ways of wellness Instagram website give people the access to be able to find where you guys are and get involved because I think it's um spectacular what you guys are doing. It's in it's so nice from a surfer to see the giving back to people who are struggling to that love of surfing and love of the ocean. What's brought so much joy to myself and yourself over the last you know what I mean our whole life mm. to be able to pass that on to other people I think is really special and it's something that I'm going to try and work out how I can tie in this good human factory stuff a bit more. I want to start doing like my corporate workshops and tie a surf little session in as well. But yeah. one day we'll get there. But yeah. man, it's been incredible getting to know the story of ways of wellness and understand your journey a bit more and learn, yeah, where you guys have come from. Because as myself, who has known about waves of wellness for quite some time, 
to be honest, I had no idea the depth that it went and the um, sheer reach that you guys are beginning to, yeah, really the impact that you guys are having, which is so cool. Two last questions. First one is, do you know to date how many people have come through your program? I just think it'd be cool to, to ballpark over the last couple yeah. of years. Yeah, absolutely. So three over 3,000 people have come through, 3,160-something. Wow. wow. And um, and that's over six years, but the, the exponential growth is exciting. But that's just our surf therapy side of things. Like yeah. the, the corporate wellbeing side of things that you mentioned, like we're doing in-office and on-the-beach programs. Hey. So, mate, come and chat to us about how we can do something. Yeah, we'll together. have to try and collaborate if I can tie my workshop yeah. in and then come do that as well. And it probably looks good. I'm a pro surfer. Come get involved. <laughs> no, nah, we'll, um, that sounds like fun. We can try to do some stuff next year for sure great and I, I think one of the things that we as like people from the surfing industry or surfing as a part of our lives in a big way there's a lot of like toxic masculinity and there's a lot of guys that are really struggling to talk about their emotions in a way which we really need to to connect and vulnerability or, or opening up and sharing how you're actually traveling is something that you know probably five to ten percent of my friends actually do mm. and so i'm a big advocate for that but i i do believe that we've got so far to go yeah. to feel comfortable in acknowledging that yes a lot of us do have traumas in our lives a lot of us do have to do the work and mindfulness meditation a big part of that but this this term woo woo is thrown around a lot which really fucks me off because <laughs> it's like it's not necessarily woo woo it's just the the challenge of them that they find in talking about it mm. that means that they label it with with this real far-fetched sort of left of field thing so the more we can do stuff like this and normalize the fact that we go through some pretty high highs and low lows in life and it's about riding those waves like that's how we can start to make some some real impact i think yeah i just think that awareness that we all go through these challenging times and understanding that i mean looking back i know how my mind was as well and i'd look at meditation and gratitude and stuff and be like oh woo woo but now it just makes so much sense to me and it's like how do you convey that message in a way that is cool and that's why i'm really trying to spearhead the way that i'm taking yeah. mine with good humor factory of having young professional athletes try and break this woo woo stigma of like hey wait this young 28 year old pro surfer is coming to talk to me about gratitude and mental health not some guy in a wheelchair that's tried to take their life saying don't do this which there obviously is um, so many people with great stories to share about their journeys. But for me at school, it didn't inspire me to be cool like the guy talking about mental health. It kind of left me in fear and like almost magnified like what mental health was. Whereas now with your organization, my organization, I think we are really beginning to break that stigma. I fucking hate the word stigma. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it's huge. But the stigma of the word stigma is, is a big part of it, right? Yeah, but there is a lot of stigma out there that actually prevents pe people from, from really telling the truth about where they're at. And vulnerability mm. is a, a big, you know, booming thing at the moment. Brene yeah. Brown and all the work she's doing there. But if you can get vulnerable, I often say that that's where the, the ma magic starts to happen. Yeah. And as blokes, we're told that, well, you know, toughen up, blah, blah, blah. That's the stigma from the years ago. But actually, it's far more stronger or you are far more stronger if you dig deep and actually share vulnerably about where you're at and be honest that things aren't going well. Because if you are hiding and pretending, that is so much harder to pretend there is no cracks on the surface mm. and then inevitably more cracks appear. 
Yeah, it, it's crazy how many people are, and I think it just comes back to lack of awareness. I feel like so many of us are, anytime something comes up, oh, push it to the side, whether it be take up all our time with our work to distract us or take up our time with partying and distract us with drugs and alcohol. This idea of like distraction to not actually have to deal with our problems is so apparent. And now one thing that I feel like almost all of us do, and I'm a huge sucker for this too, it went from like so often it was like cover yourself with work and then like drugs and alcohol, whereas now I feel like the biggest thing that we're all doing is our phones, is our computers, distraction. If I'm like walking 20 meters from my couch to my toilet, I'll usually check Instagram on the walk to the bathroom. (laughs) And I'm just like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Like, I can't even remember the last thing about it. I can't remember the last time I went to the toilet without taking my phone to the bathroom. Like it's seriously, I used to see videos like two years ago of like funny videos like skits of people like forgetting their phone to the toilet and just be like what it is whereas like i'm like catching myself now i can't remember the last time i went to the bathroom out my phone i'm like whoa yeah it's like crazy yeah. how much we all turn to our phone for distraction and how we have our phones in our faces so much that like arguably we are probably the most connected as a human race that we ever have been mm. there's so many amazing ways that we can reach you know friends from far corners of the world but i would also say that we are the most disconnected that we've ever been mm. because we are so in our devices that we are struggling to put them down and connect face to face with the people around us. Yeah. You see people on a date in a restaurant and they're bloody not talking to each other, just scrolling through their phones. Crazy. It does my head in. Yeah. But I think the more that we can acknowledge that true human connection is the way that we can feel like a valued member of society. Mm. I think that's how we need to actually think about things moving forward. Like we need to connect with people more. We need social inclusion models that allow for people from very different walks of life to feel included. And we need an ability to have people that are not necessarily accessing mainstream support services or mainstream opportunities like surfing in the ocean and what's done for us. That's what we're aiming to do at Waves of Wellness is give people the opportunity to get involved in something and feel like an actual member of society. Mm. Yeah, I love that just the way you kind of were going on that. It made sense to me why you guys do do eight-week programs rather than one-off sessions, Mm. one-on-one. It creates this community aspect, which I think is beautiful. Mm. And I'm guessing that was by design too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, man, this has been epic getting to catch up and hear your story. It's been... Yeah, a massive eye-opener for me. I'm excited. We'll have to chat off air and try and work out some things that we can do together next year because obviously something we're both very passionate about. We have such a connection to the ocean and mental health. And yeah, hopefully we can do some stuff together next year. But the last question I do finish Good Humans podcast with every single time is, what does being a good human mean to Joel Pilgrim? What does being a good human mean to Joel Pilgrim? Take your time. What's on my mind is something that I think is a good challenge, right, Mm -hmm. to your listeners around why don't you check in on people around them and ask them how they're going, but how they're really going. Mm. And I think being a good human to me is, is like that by actually not being afraid to remove your mask and show every part of you. There are some not so wonderful aspects of us as humans, which we often shy away from because we want to put our best foot forward. But for me, I think to be a good human means to embrace yourself and show self-love and and positive self-esteem in the sense that not everything is positive within mm. us. 
but being able to share that and normalize that and normalize the, the challenges, the struggles, all, warts and all with everyone. Of course, we need to have boundaries and, and do it within reason and do it safely. But I am a big advocate for actually normalizing the fact that shit isn't roses and daisies and we need to talk about that more because that's how we actually understand that we're not alone. Yeah. The, the amount of times that I've gone into a corporate workplace and said, you know, here's my story, let's all get together and let's do this in a very safe way. I then hear people share the most wild things that they've never, ever shared in the workplace. I had a, a CEO of a, a big company share that she had a miscarriage 12 weeks ago and she hadn't told anyone at work because the question was asked in a way where she wasn't able to dodge it. How are you? But but actually, how are you really going? Mm. And I think... I think as a, as a human or as, as people, we need to actually look at, at doing more stuff like that where we can connect, normalize and be real with each other and put down the fucking mask. Yeah. So maybe that's a challenge for the listener. Like, what are you going to do when someone asks you how you're traveling or when you ask them, are you going to ask the follow-up question of, but actually, how are you really going? Yeah. I think that's a great way to finish. And I think it's such an important one for all of us to recognize that that follow-up question and not being scared of the answer and knowing that quite often what most people need is just somebody to listen and somebody to give them space to listen. We don't need to have the answers, but just giving somebody the space to share, whether we have the answers or not, is generally the first step and quite often all that's needed just for people to get what's in their head out and have somebody else hear it and kind of for one by sometimes speaking out loud about our problems it can kind of dismantle them straight away because we realize how silly they seem once we verbalize them but also we just don't understand how important it is to open up and i think as well just to kind of lean off the back of that there's a difference between being vulnerable and posting an instagram story if you're crying or posting your thing which i think is great and it's so important that we do have certain people who are really open on social media about that but there's so many that'll do that, but then their best friend will say, how are you doing? And they'll be like, yeah, I'm all good. Using social media as a platform to show vulnerability is shouldn't be the first step. It yeah. should be being able to actually have that conversation with the people around you to actually open up because they're the ones who are there for you, not just virtual signaling and sending you a love heart to say that they support you because they're not going to be the ones who pick up the phone. They're not going to be the ones who show up at your doorstep when you're really struggling they're the people who need to know your problems and yeah i'm sure you can probably comment off the back of that too because we do see it a lot nowadays oh 100 percent. but also the big misconception is that if i ask my friend how they're going I, i'm going to make things worse yeah you're not going to make it worse you can't make it worse yeah and it's it's around you don't have to have the skills no you just have to be a shoulder yeah. And and don't come up with all these ideas around what they can do. Just listen yeah. and just be there for them. But yes, I think that if we can move away from our devices and, and use that idea of true connection that I spoke about earlier, that is definitely the foundation that we need to build upon for you know social inclusion connection, but also positive self-esteem, yeah. which allows us to then feel good amongst ourselves and our peers to then look at what we can do to inspire others through social media. Mm. We should never lead with that because it's not reality. Yeah, absolutely. Well, man, this has been so much fun. Thanks for jumping on Good Humans Podcast. I'll leave in the show notes for everyone to be able to come and connect with yourself and Waves of Wellness. People can go on there and donate because you guys are a charity. All of your programs, are all your programs free for if um, yeah somebody comes on and wants to yeah. do them? Yeah, money, money. I don't want money to ever be a factor that prevents someone from accessing mental health support. Yeah, well. So they will always be free and that's why donations are really important. So thank you. Amazing, yeah. So make sure you go donate. Um, 
we'll do something with the Good Human Factory next year where we can do a fundraiser and, I don't know, I'm thinking of like a big waves of wellness Good Human Factory surf day that's just free and open Love to the community it. to have a bunch of the practitioners there. That might even be an even easier way to get people to drop that stigma. It's not like a big mental health direct program, but it's like just a come surf day. So let's um get that plan for next year. And yeah, thanks so much for jumping on, brother. Cooper, I love your work. Well done, mate. You're doing amazing things. You're making waves <laughs> and I'm really proud of you. Cheers, brother. Appreciate it. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.